Welcome, welcome, welcome to Easter 2021. Is anybody in this place excited that that tomb was empty? Amen, amen, praise God. I tell you, this is, this is my favorite Sunday of the year, hands down. And it's the biggest Sunday of the year in all of church work and in Christendom because we are celebrating the greatest act of faithfulness, the greatest act of love that's ever been accomplished in the history of the universe. We are celebrating the resurrection of our Savior. And we do that every Sunday. Hopefully we do that every day. But it's just extra special today. And I'm so thankful that you're here. And there's people here today that have probably not been here in a long time. In fact, our first two services, it's a good thing we did three today. We were wondering if we really needed three. I can tell you it's a good thing we did because the first two services had a lot of people. And uh, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful day. A lot of people will come back to church today that haven't been to church in a long time, maybe because of COVID-19, maybe because you're just not sure about this new, young, hip pastor. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you're here today, so thank you for coming out and being here to celebrate with us. Uh, you know, this is like the Super Bowl, the Masters, and the Final Four all mixed into one. It's such a big Sunday for us, and we get so excited about it. We do a lot to prepare for this week. We start planning Easter um, usually right after Christmas. And uh, so, in fact, probably next week we'll be preparing for Christmas already. Uh, it's just kind of what we do here in church work. So uh, we do a lot. You can see the atrium has a lot of stuff in it. Uh, the, the outside, we got the photo booth and the prayer tent. And, you know, we just work a little extra hard to make sure everything's nice and clean and just a little bit straighter and nicer than, than even on a normal Sunday. And so it's a very, very busy week for us. And uh, for me and my family, it's been an especially busy week because we had uh, a, a little, a tough week, actually, on a Thursday morning, in the wee hours of the morning, my son woke us up, and he was in excruciating pain. And uh, we'd given him some, some Motrin and trying to help him out, but nothing was working, and it was just, it was obvious he was in a lot of distress. So we ended up taking him to the emergency room. And uh, we eventually went from the emergency room to the Children's Hospital of Georgia. And uh, he stayed overnight, Thursday night, and then Friday morning, they actually did surgery on him. They did a, a urological procedure on him. I'm going to spare you the gory details, but uh, if you ask him, he'll be happy to tell you about it. Um, but it was a, we had to stay there all day. He, we, he was able to come home late Friday, and uh, we, we, he's, he was home recovering. And in fact, he's here today, so he's doing great. It was a, it was a, good, it was a good thing. Yes, amen. Amen. Thank you. And I don't say all that so you feel sorry for us or even so you clap for us. I say that because I am testifying of God's faithfulness. You see, I believe that God is faithful in all situations, all circumstances. And you may say, well, that, that seems a little a little naive, maybe even a little uh, uh, presumptuous, or maybe you're not real self-aware because, you know, you're a pastor, and the week leading up to Easter is the biggest week of the year, and you lost two days because of what happened to your son, and, and uh, to, to see that God was faithful in that, it seems like, to me, maybe he let you down, you know, that, that he didn't come through for you like he should, but my response to that would be that I, I believe so much in the sovereignty of God. I believe so much in the love and the faithfulness of God that I believe that he is not even able to not be faithful. In any circumstance, he cannot not be faithful. It's all about whether or not we're able to see his faithfulness in those circumstances. It's all about whether or not we have eyes to see, if our eyes are open. You may say, well, I think you have your eyes shut and you're, you're, uh, you're being uh, a little weird about it. Well, I would say, I'm so thankful for my God. I'm so thankful for what he's done in my life. And I can tell you that when you believe that he is who he says he is, you start to see his faithfulness in everything. You know, we see his faithfulness in the empty tomb. His faithfulness didn't stop at the empty tomb. 
That was just the beginning of it. He's been faithful every day ever since. He's never in the history of the world let any one of us down. But it's all about whether or not we will have the eyes to see his faithfulness in our life. And you know, the tension of a minister of the gospel, someone that's in the ministry like myself, the tension is to help people get past their skepticism of who God is to help them see him for who he really is. That he really is true. That he really is faithful. That he really is good. That he really is loving. That he really is kind. That he really is all the things he says he is and that he is worthy of our lives. That's the tension that I deal with. And I want to tell you today, if you're skeptical about this faith thing about Jesus, then I would tell you today that you're in the right place because you're also not alone because there's none of us that doesn't deal with being skeptical on some level. This is the challenge for all of us, even on this Easter Sunday. And it's beautiful because we are all at different places on this journey of faith. Some of you here might say, I've been a Christian for a long time. I have no problem believing that he is faithful in everything. I have no problem believing that the word of God is true. No problem believing that the tomb was empty and that he is at the right hand of the Father praying for me. No problem with that. I believe he is who he says he is. I'm passionate about Jesus. But for you, maybe there have been instances in your life where you've noticed that you have not responded in a way that you thought you would. Maybe in tragedy, you didn't have as much faith as you thought you had. Or maybe during this COVID-19 pandemic that you've allowed fear to have more of a place in your life than you would have hoped you would have. And you've realized that maybe I am a little skeptical of God's faithfulness because of the issues that I've seen in my own life. Or maybe you're here today and your faith is more about just believing in the high points, we like to call it in Christianity. You believe you need Jesus to be your savior, but it was more transactional in your life. That You see a need and you were willing to give your, your heart to him and let him forgive you of your sins, but it was more about a transaction. It was more about just, I need salvation. I know it, so I'm going to receive it. But when it comes to living out the daily aspects of your life, you may be a little skeptical about whether or not God's faithful in your, in your job or in your finances or in your relationships or in your career or in your health, whatever it is, you have a hard time seeing God's faithfulness in the everyday life. And I'm glad you're here today too. And maybe you are skeptical about all of it. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I don't know if I believe any of this faith stuff. I'm here today because it's Easter and my mom asked me to come to church and so I want to make her happy and we live in the South and in the South, a good person goes to church on Easter Sunday, right? And so that's why you're here. And you don't even know if you believe any of this. Maybe you're here, not because somebody asked you, but you came because you just feel better about yourself when you come to church on Easter. But you still don't know if you really are willing to give your life to Jesus, if you're really willing to believe that he is everything that he says he is in his word. I want to tell you today that I'm really glad that you're here. Because I don't believe you're here because your mama asked you to come or because you think he might make you feel better. That might be why you think you came, but I believe God brought you here. I believe you're here for a purpose. I believe that he wants to show you that he is who he says he is, and you can trust him in a way that he says you can trust him. And so we're going to believe that with you today. Uh, the, uh, the concept or the idea of living this life of faith is that you really don't get to see the faithfulness of God until you believe it. See, you believe before you can see when it comes to faith. We talked about this last week, actually, if you were here. That when you believe that he's faithful, you see his faithfulness in a situation where your son has to go to the hospital and have surgery. When you believe he's, he's your provider, you see his faithfulness and provision in your life. When you believe he's your healer, you see him as your healer. You get to see the evidence of it, but you don't get to see it until you believe it. And this will always be a tension in all of our lives. 
But you know, skepticism is very common among all of us. We all deal with it on some level. And it was very common. It was the flavor of the day when Jesus was crucified. We're celebrating this story today of him resurrecting, but when he was actually crucified three days earlier, there was a lot of skepticism. In fact, the religious leaders were very skeptical. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was. In fact, they looked at him when he was on the cross, and it's documented in Matthew 27, 42. The, the, the chief priest said he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. They were very skeptical. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you don't really believe he is who he says he is, but you've taken those moments and you've said, okay, God, if you're real, then I need you to fix this situation. I need you to do this for me. And it didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen, so your skepticism felt like it was validated. Like, see, I have a reason to feel skeptical because he didn't do what I asked him to do. Or maybe you're like one of the crowd, who the crowd, you know, the week, the week earlier, which is good, uh, the, Friday, the Sunday before Easter is, is Palm Sunday that we celebrate when Jesus came into Jerusalem And we celebrate that because the crowd at that time was cheering for him. They were saying, Hosanna, glory to God. They were excited that he was coming, but he wasn't who they thought he was. See, they thought he was coming to to lead a revolt against Rome, that he was going to be their king, that he was going to take his place on the throne, and they were going to have their own country again. But he wasn't who they thought he was going to be because just a few short days later, when he's standing in Pilate's judgment hall, those same people that were yelling Hosanna now are saying, crucify him, crucify him. Because he was not who they thought he was. And maybe that's who he is for you. Maybe he's not who you thought he was. Maybe you put your faith in him to a degree, but he didn't do what you thought he should do. He didn't, he didn't come up to your standard of what you feel like the gospel should be for you in your life. And so you've went from thinking he was great to maybe struggling and being really skeptical. And you feel like your skepticism was validated in that. Or maybe you're like the disciples. The disciples knew he was the Messiah. They just didn't know exactly what that meant. And these guys actually saw Jesus do all kinds of wonderful things on the earth. They saw him heal cripples. He saw, they saw him heal blind people. They saw him cast demons out of people. They saw him raise a dead person. Some of the most amazing miracles that someone could see. Yet when push came to shove, history tells us that every one of them abandoned him when he got arrested, except for John. They ran. And maybe that's you. Maybe you have seen his faithfulness in your life in ways that you just can't, almost can't even believe, you can't even imagine. But then a tough time came in life, and, and it caused you to turn your back and to run from him, to be skeptical. You felt like your skepticism was validated because you, you really believed that he was who he said he was, but then you had a moment in time where something happened that caused you to question all of it. And you've kind of kept him at arm's length ever since then. That's a lot of us. But I'm telling you, I'm glad you're here today because even though you may feel like your skepticism, your cynicism, your doubt, your uncertainty has been validated and it's been fed by the events in this world and of your life, I want to tell you today that there's more. There's more to the story. That he loves you and and that we believe for you that God wants to reveal his love to you in a powerful way. When they put him in the tomb on that Friday, all the people thought their skepticism was validated. Every one of them said, yep, see, we told you. In fact, I see the disciples saying, walking around going, man, I just knew it was too good to be true when he was in the grave. Everybody thought, yep, see, see what happens? But nobody, but nobody saw Sunday coming. 
born in Indianapolis in 1966. Uh, stayed there till I was in first grade, then I moved to Chicago. Had two older sisters, so I was the baby. Mom and dad, um, everybody lived in the same household. It was, it was a really good childhood. Played a little bit of baseball, a lot of football when I was growing up. Um, played high school football, wrestled. Had some really good friends, good times. I uh, got to go to Wrigley Field a few times when I was a young man. Yeah, so we went to church on uh, most every Sunday morning and of course Easter and, and, and Christmas Eve. I remember every Christmas Eve, I hated the midnight service. You know, it started like 11.30 at night and I was like, I just want to be home and get ready to go to bed because I want to get up the next morning and open my presents. Pretty much regularly stopped going when I was 12 because I was old enough to stay home by myself at that point. So my parents didn't require me to go to church. When I was a teenager, I really didn't have a relationship with God. I didn't know who he was. It was just some abstract thing that we did on the weekends occasionally and on Christmas. It was it was more about just me and my friends and, and, and the sports that I played. I, I went to school. I, I tolerated school. I was so excited when I graduated from high school and I was going to the Army. I knew that I wouldn't have to do school anymore. So I enlisted then 299 days later on January 8th. I left uh, from Libertyville, Illinois, and flew to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and started basic training. In basic training, on Sunday mornings, if you are a Christian, you get to go to church. So you don't have to deal with the drill sergeants during that time. So that's a very big motivator to find the Lord. So I started going to church, and, and I read the New Testament Bible, and because um, you couldn't have any other books. But I don't think that I really had a relationship with them yet. That didn't come till much later. The military was the way to move forward in my life and get some training on something, and I wouldn't have to spend four years in school. So I got to do some pretty cool things. I worked on helicopters. You know, they say the difference between the Army and the Boy Scouts is the Boy Scouts has adult supervision. So I spent a lot of time on military career in Korea. And while I was over there, um, holidays would come up and you don't have family there or anything like that. And I remember uh, one Christmas, we decided during the entire Christmas, we were just gonna drink. So we literally would go to the clubs and, and drink and then go to sleep and wake up the next morning and start drinking again. And spend about two weeks drunk, literally. It was entertainment. It was uh, escapism a little bit, um, getting away from the everyday life. Uh, I was social, everybody else was doing it around me but it wasn't something that uh, was good for me. I mean, obviously, it, it did a lot of uh, damage to me in different relationships in my life. I met a lady who worked at a photo studio in the, in the downtown area where we would all drop our pictures off to get developed because we used to have to do that. And she worked there, met her, started dating her, and uh, eventually asked her to be my wife and married her and brought her back to the United States. She's my oldest daughter, Nicole, it's her, it's her mother. So Nicole was born in, uh, in Georgia. We spent uh, the first few years of her life in Georgia, and then we decided it, it would probably be good for us to go back to Korea. I uh, arranged to get a, uh, a transfer, if you will, to back to Korea, and actually the relationship ended when I went back to Korea with her on the second time. I wasn't the man I needed to be and couldn't be who I needed her, and she needed me to be for her. So when I came back to the United States after that tour to, tour to Korea, um, I brought Nicole back with me. I was her parent. And then I met uh, Victoria's mom. Actually, when I was getting my haircut, uh, she uh, uh, worked at the, the salon where I was getting my haircut. You know, it was all, always about having somebody around to tell me that, that I was worthwhile. 
unless I was able to be validated by her, I wasn't getting what I needed. And, and it honestly wasn't a good relationship at all. And as that one started to end, in order to try to hold on to that relationship, I actually agreed to get out of the military and uh, move back to Savannah with her. And it was in the process of doing that when uh, the marriage ended. And that part of my life, and I always needed external people telling me that I was worthwhile, that I was good. I would try to attract that around me, but it was all about what they could do for me, not what I could do for them. It came from loneliness. It came from uh, a desire to know who I was. Now I'm getting out of the military. I'm a single parent with Nicole still. She's got Victoria with her in, in Savannah. And the, my whole life is literally falling apart.
Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. And sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. with Victoria's mom had ended. Um, I was a single parent with Nicole and uh, I was getting out of the military for a purpose that really I didn't, wasn't gonna work anymore because I wouldn't be able to save the relationship with, with Victoria's mom. And I knew I needed to get back to church. Um, I knew I needed to have Jesus in my life. And there was a guy who uh, worked with me in the military who was a member at New Hope. So I came to church on uh, that Sunday morning and I, I walked in, I remember sat in the front left-hand side of the church. I was completely blown away by by the, the feelings I had and the closeness that I felt to the Lord. And it was, it was like a salvation experience all over again. Um, I, I broke down and I wept and I worshiped. All the walls came down, everything that I was trying to keep between me and God to, to keep our distance from each other, if you will, to not give complete control just broke down. I completely surrendered to the Lord on, on, on that day. When my relationship with Jesus, when I first started going to New Hope, was one of restoration. It was one of him uh, breaking the things off of me that he didn't want to have there. It took a while. It wasn't a quick thing. But over a period of time, I really was able to learn who he wanted me to be, what my identity in him needed to be, what he wanted me to do. 
And it was through there that I found my worth in, in everything that I do in the world. It, it's now everything I do is all about him. It's what he wants me to do. It's not, it's not something that's for me anymore. John Eldridge in Wild at Heart talks about, you know, we need to be validated as men. And a lot of times, a lot of men make the mistake of going to the woman to ask who I am as a man, where we really need to be validated by God and told who we are by God. And then we can be the man for, for women and for society and for the church. And the Lord took me through a period of time where I wasn't with anybody. Um, I was by myself and I started finding my worth in Him and found out that He loved me. And that's what I needed. And then once I had found that, he brought Angela into my life um, because at that point I was ready for her. A lot of people think that a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus is restrictive. A lot of people think that you have to give up too much. And that's why I didn't do it for a lot of time because I really thought that I would be giving up too much. But when you get into a relationship with Jesus, you find out that the stuff that he removes from your life is stuff that was, was oppressive, things that were holding you down. And true freedom is in him. Anything he wants you to do, everything he has you in, in your life is literally for your good because it's for his glory. It's, it's freedom. Uh, freedom from worry, freedom from stress. Uh, and when you do have those things in your life, because you will, I mean, we're not guaranteed not to have stress and worry in our lives. You realize that you're not doing it by yourself. He's there with you and he's there encouraging you and loving on you. You have to have the time alone with him to really find out who he is so you can find out who you are. Amen. Amen. What a great story of God's redemption. Amen. You know, it's easy for us to think sometimes that uh, for Christians and for church people, it's just really easy to love God. You know, if you're in church a lot, you just, or if you're a Christian, that we just kind of float through life and there's no struggles, there's no uh, uncertainty, there's no skepticism in life. We just kind of rise above everything and no matter what trials come along, uh, we just handle it just fine and everything just goes great all the time, right? But the reality is that most of our stories are very similar to Frank's. That we were far from God, running from God, looking to other places for our validation, looking to other places for our worth, and even looking to other places for our happiness. Many of us have, have run where we've tried to find happiness on our own, and getting the best the world can give us. But what happens is, when you find that happiness apart from God, what you find is that that happiness is very empty. It's very, it's very dry. It doesn't fulfill us because we're not meant to be happy apart from God. And frankly, the reason we can never be happy with what the world gives us is because God has put it in our heart to want more than the world could ever give. Something that money can't please, relationships can't please, careers can't please, power, none of it can fully please us because we are designed to want more. In fact, King Solomon, the great king of Israel, wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said that God has planted eternity in the human heart. Every human is hardwired for eternity. The reason you can't be fully satisfied with anything this world can give you is because it'll never be enough. In fact, the Apostle Paul even tells us that if you just want Jesus 
for this life and that there is no eternity with him, that we are to be pitied more than all men. That even Jesus coming into our life and us being Christians is not just for this life. If it's only for this life, then it's meaningless because we are wired for eternity. And what happens is when we realize that nothing in this world is going to be enough for us and we can't get enough from this world, what happens is we start wrestling with God. We start to wrestle with the gospel. Because, you know, the gospel is hard to hear because the gospel is offensive to the human heart. The gospel is offensive to the human nature, to the selfish nature of wanting to have things the way we want them to have, the way we want to have it. The gospel is offensive to that. And it can be difficult for us to hear. In fact, Jesus himself said in Luke 7 and verse 23, he said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is not saying here, golly gee, I hope that what I'm saying to you isn't offensive. I'm trying to say it as nicely as I can, you know, and I don't, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that he knows that what he says is difficult to hear, that you need a savior, that you are a sinner apart from him, that there is no hope. That's offensive. But he's saying that blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Because he's telling us that if we can receive this gospel and get past the offense of it, and we can receive it and live it, it's going to give us greater life than we could ever have dreamed that we could have on this earth. And the, the gospel is so offensive. It's offensive in so many ways to the human nature. It's offensive to our pride. It's offensive to think that I am not good enough, right? You've probably heard that. You've probably felt that. When you read the Bible and you hear the words of Jesus saying that you are not good enough on your own, without me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's offensive to our pride because our pride wants so badly to feel like we're good enough. It wants so badly to feel like, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm sure I'm gonna, it's going to all work out. I'm going to figure it out. God's going to let me into heaven. If there is a heaven, he's going to let me in because I'm a good person. And Jesus says, no, you're not. The Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags apart from him. And that's offensive. It's also offensive to our common sense. You know, if you live your life based on living by what you can prove and what makes sense, the gospel is offensive. Because the gospel says that God himself came to this earth in the form of a man and lived on this earth for 33 years. Most people didn't recognize him as God. And then they crucify him. He goes into a tomb. Three days later, he comes out of the tomb alive, spends about another 40 days on the earth, hanging out with his disciples and many other people, and then eventually goes back to heaven and is now in heaven with God, the Father, and that when we die, if we give our lives to him, that we're going to get to be with him one day again. Now, that makes no common sense. And if you live by just common sense, the gospel is offensive to you. But as offensive as it is, when it is embraced, it's the most freeing, life-giving thing that we could ever experience in our life. Amen? There's nothing better than the gospel when we really embrace it and accept it. When we get to the place where we realize this life can't give us what we need, when we realize that we're not good enough, when we realize that there is more to life than just these 80, 90, 100 years we get on this earth, you realize that the gospel is really the essence of life. It's the essence. It's not something we, we do as a, as a side hustle in our life. Being a Christian isn't a thing we do on the side. It's not something we do on Sunday mornings. It permeates every aspect of our life. 
because it is the essence. You start to see God in everything. You see him in the tough times. You see him in the good times. You see him in the challenging times. You see him on Sunday morning. You see him on Wednesday afternoon. You see him all over the place because he really is everywhere in our life. And when you get with God, I think Frank said, when you got to get to that place where you get with God so that he can show you who he is so you can see who you are. It's a powerful statement. Because when we get with God, what we do find out is that we're not good enough. But it's not about not being good enough in a way that makes us feel bad about ourselves. It's a way that makes us see, okay, God, I'm not good enough, but you are. And I'm going to give myself to you. You see, the remarkable thing about Christianity is not that we have a Savior that saves us from our sins. The remarkable thing is that we have a Savior that saves us from our sins, even though he knows every thought in our mind. He knows every part of our being. He knows everything we've ever done, yet he still loves us. How would you like it if everybody you knew could see every thought you had? Like if you had a monitor above your head, that every thought that came into your brain went to that monitor and people around you could read it. That would be a tough day, right? That'd be rough. I don't think any of us would have any friends. We'd all live in caves. That's tough. But you know what? That's exactly what God is. He sees every thought. Every skepticism we have, every cynicism we have, every uncertainty, every doubt, every bit of hatred that you felt in your life, he's seen it all. Yet the Bible tells us very clearly that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that when we were still sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to be good enough. He didn't wait for us to figure it out. He didn't wait for us to deserve it. He didn't sit up in heaven and go, all right, now they're good enough. Now I'll go do it. It was when we were at our worst and the situation was the darkest when he came and he paid the price for all of us to know him. You know, you and me, we, we got dressed up this morning to come to church on Easter. You, you, you work just a little bit harder on Easter Sunday morning getting ready, don't you? You might have even got your hair cut this week, got your nails done, might even bought some new clothes. I bought a new shirt just for the occasion. And you got all cleaned up and you came to church. Because, you know, there's a photo booth and you knew there was going to be one. You're like, well, family's going to want to take a picture. Better look good. So you do everything you can do to look nice. Nothing wrong with that, right? It's a good thing. In fact, the person sitting next to you is very thankful that you showered this morning. But let's never make the mistake of thinking that that's how we have to come to God. That we got to get all cleaned up. That we got to get everything in order. We got to get everything right. I got to get, I got to get that stuff taken care of that I'm dealing with. Then I can come to God. That's not how God works. God died for us while we were still sinners. He says, you don't have to get everything fixed up before you come to me because frankly, you fixing yourself up apart from me is worthless. It's not going to last. He says, you come to me as you are. In fact, the words of Jesus, very, very clear in John 6 and 37. It says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive him away. Never drive him away. You see, Jesus did everything he had to do for us, and he says, I'll never, ever cast you out of my presence if you come to me. You don't have to have it all figured out. The Apostle Paul in in 2 Corinthians, you know, he, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He lived a good bit of his life hating Christians, hated them. In fact, he dedicated his life to squashing out Christianity until he met Jesus. Until he gave his life to Jesus, then everything changed. He went from being a person that was trying to squash Christianity to live in the rest of his life, to expand the kingdom. Gave his life for the gospel. Literally gave his life for the gospel. And look what he said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. 
He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. It's as if God took all the sin of the past, of the present, and of the future, which is us, because we weren't around 2,000 years ago. Nobody's that old. And he took all of it, and he brought it all together in one place and put it on Jesus on the cross. And then that, that says that in, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So God put the sin on Jesus, and, and what Jesus did was good enough. God said, that's enough to take the sin of the world. It's a mystery. We don't understand it all and how it works, but we know that God was pleased to crush his son, is what the Bible says, because it took the sin of the world away. And then it says that we get his righteousness in return. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. It's like we put that garment on that's, that's the righteousness of Christ when we live in him. He also said in 2 Corinthians 5, a little earlier in that chapter, in verse 15, he says, and he, Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So here's the catch. Here's the catch to all of this. Like what Jesus did was enough. It was great. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. We get to receive it. We get to live it. We get forgiveness of our sins. The catch is the, the, the last thing that I would say to you that's offensive about the gospel. It's offensive to our pride, our common sense. It's also offensive to our, to our uh, independence. He's saying, you can't be independent anymore. Now you give your life to me. Now you let me live through you. That's the only catch in all of this. That verse says that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live, a, live for him who died for them and who was raised again. To receive what Jesus did for you, we have to surrender our lives to him. This is not about a transaction. We are not transactional in our relationship with Jesus. The, the relationship with Jesus is not about a transaction. It's about a relationship. It's about giving ourselves to him. It's about trusting him with our life. It's about surrendering our life. Now we don't just make our own decisions. We don't just think for ourselves anymore. We don't just, we surrender our, our job to him, our career choices, our school, our relationships, our finances, our health, our marriage. Everything comes up under him now. And we trust him for all of it. And as Frank said, it's hard sometimes to become a Christian because you know you feel like God's going to make me give up things that I don't want to give up. And so we resist. But the interesting is, thing is that when you do give yourself to him, what you realize is those things you were keeping, that were keeping you from him were really what were oppressing you. They were the ones keeping you down. Those were the issues in life that kept you from really being able to live for him and love him and experience the freedom that he wants to give each and every one of us. Praise God. Would you stand with me, please, as I... As I close today, so what you find when you really trust God and you see his faithfulness in everything, it's not that you're naive. It's not that we're brainwashed. It's not that we're in denial. In fact, you might say that it's, that's really hard to say that, you know, I got to give my whole life to him. You know, that I got to submit everything to him. That's tough. And I would say there, it, it, it can be a challenge at first, but God helps us as we walk this life, as we take that next step. He doesn't take us from, you know, being a baby infant Christian to asking us to give up things that would take a mature Christian to really be able to comprehend or to, or to give in to. But the beauty of it is, is that it is a lot that he's asking us to give. He's asking us to give him everything. But you know, the Bible tells us before we are in him that we're actually dead in our transgressions. So I'd rather, 
I'd rather have to take that, make that tough decision and live my life attached to Jesus and surrender to him than to be dead. Because if you stay dead, you die, you're dead in your transgressions while you're alive, but then you die again when you die. If you want to be with him, there's no other way but to give him your life, to trust him to forgive you and to give him your life. And I want to pray for us today. And I, there may be some of you here today that are saying, yep, I'm, I'm skeptical about all of it. I really don't get it. I don't know if I believe all this faith thing, this empty tomb thing, this Jesus thing. I don't know if I believe it. You know, I want to pray for you today because I, I want God, I believe God wants to show you who he is. I believe he wants you to see him for who he is. And it's not a transaction. It's that he loved us so much that he gave himself for us, that we could know him and live for him. So I would ask you to open your hearts today as we pray. We're not going to do an altar call for social distancing purposes, but you can respond in your seat. In fact, I just ask you to just lift your hands as we pray, just to receive this prayer. And if you're here today and you'd say, my relationship with God has been transactional. I, I, just, I just need him to keep me out of hell. I would challenge you today to take that next step of surrendering your life to him, to trusting him in areas that you never have before. Because that's really where you find the freedom that he wants you to have. So would you just respond today as we pray? I just ask if you're comfortable to lift your hands to receive this prayer as we pray today. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the empty tomb, God. We thank you for the cross, but we thank you more for the empty tomb. Because without the empty tomb, the cross doesn't mean much. We thank you that you rose again and that you are at the right hand of the Father and that you are going to bring us home one day. God, we surrender ourselves to you. We thank you for who you are. I pray for anyone here today that may be skeptical, that doesn't know if they believe that you are who you say you are. God, would you reveal yourself to their heart? Would you open their heart, God, and reveal yourself? Show each and every one of us who you are. Show us your great love. Show us your passion for us, that, it was, that we were the joy that was set before you that caused you to go to the cross. Lord, help each of us to receive your forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take that next step in our life to live a life surrendered to you, trusting you, giving everything that we are to you. You deserve it, Lord. Give us the strength, give us the courage to take that next step in giving you every area of our life for your glory and for our good. Lord, it's better in your hands than it ever could be in our own hands. Help us to trust you, God. We thank you today. Thank you for loving us so much. And we love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's children said, amen, amen. God bless.